Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, July 26th, 2010. Always hard to get back in the saddle after enjoying a weekend off, a little bit of recharging the batteries, rest and relaxation, time with the family, time away from Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> and bad sermons, yeah. Get a break from that, too. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Lots of folks running around the landscape basically making claims that you sit there and go, where on earth did they get these ideas? Well, they didn't get them from the Word of God. And that's what happens is, um, you know, when it comes to sources of information about God, we have the Bible, which we can trust. And when people try to basically attack the Bible, what they're trying to do is move the Bible aside so that they can assert their own ideas about God, ideas that are not found in the scriptures. They want to exalt their idols, so to speak. Because we live in a day where, at least in Western societies, folks don't really uh, you know, go out and chop down a tree in the forest. That, well, they worship the trees anyway. But they don't chop down a tree or go down to their local lumber yard and grab a, you know, a, you know, you know, a big piece of uncut uh, lumber and then bring it home and then chisel it into a deity that they then bow down to and worship. <laughs> That's just a, such a crude way of working. Who would want to do that? Because if you did that, then everybody would know what you were doing. And so they're far more sophisticated in their idolatry. And so what they do is... <clears throat> They, it always begins with, "Oh, you're a you're a bibliolatrist. We believe in 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 the God that's beyond words, and you've turned the Bible into an idol. And we we don't we don't you know we worship Jesus. We don't worship the Bible. And you know what they're doing is they're attacking God's word, belittling it, demeaning it, attacking it. Or they'll say things like, "Oh, we live in a now a, a, a new postmodern age and." Nobody believes that scripture stuff anyways. I mean, come on, if you believe in the Bible, then you have to believe that 
uh, stoning disobedient children is okay, and that eating uh, eating shellfish is a sin, and and uh, and you have to believe something silly and stupid. You know, like you know, the Earth is young, and and you know when it's a gazillion years old, and and we all know that Darwin was right. And yeah, see, uh, we uh, what they do is they attack the Bible, and then once the Bible is effectively neutralized, they begin exalting their own ideas about God and the God that they create is usually a God in their own image, a God that they can tolerate, a God that they can put up with, a God that looks a lot like them, a God who is so forward thinking and progressive as to never send anybody to hell, a God who's so forward thinking and progressive that he's pretty much got a hands off uh, approach when it comes to things like sin and judgment and stuff. Oh, and, and that death on the cross, that was just to show us how much he loved it. It was God's way of stretching out his arms and saying, come here, I want to give you a big hug. Yeah, and so what happens is, is that once the Bible is effectively neutralized, then the idol construction really truly begins. And what they do is they create a God, a God without, well, gold or wood or anything, you know, crude like that, but it's a god nonetheless, it, it, with a little g, a false deity that they worship and they sing to and they praise and they and the god they believe in doesn't really exist, but what they do is they like to basically shroud themselves and wear the trappings of of uh, of the biblical church. I mean, because if I mean, the the reality is is that if they basically said, you know, we're not really a Christian church, and they changed the name, and, oh, there's a church that did that, C3. Well, at least then, when, when you do that, you're being honest, and, and you're not putting on airs like you're a Christian. But if you did that, then you might alienate potential customers. You know, you, 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 <laughs> it's all about, you know, market share nowadays, which kind of kind of off topic here, but what topic am I on anyway at the moment? Um, I was thinking about this. The thing about these, uh, these church growth strategies, these church growth methodologies, they're not talking about growing the church. They're talking about growing your church. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, hmm. When Paul went out on his missionary journeys, you know, he was sent by the Holy Spirit, and he was uh, with uh, several other believers, you know, in a church that was in Antioch, and uh, the Holy Spirit set him aside, and and all the different churches that Paul planted, they weren't satellite campi of uh, the church in Antioch. Uh, They were all part of the church. And uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is all these seeker-driven church growth strategies and methodologies really have as its core growing your particular individual conversation under the particular uh, leadership of your particular pastor who is particularly called with a with his own unique vision and mission and his own yeah <clears throat> and build that particular brand whereas you know i don't think in the first century or in the early days of Christianity or up until long, long time ago, uh, Christians really thought in terms of individual congregations as being the church. When we talked about the church, we talked about the greater body of Christ. Uh huh. And so, I mean, <clears throat> here's one of the things that's nice about doing this radio program 
is that, yes, I'm a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod guy. I'm a confessional Lutheran. But I don't have any control over who listens to this program. And um, I'm not doing this program as an outreach pro- as an outreach uh, for my particular uh, congregation that I'm a member of. I'm preaching the gospel in the hopes that Christ would grow his church, the church. That and yeah, that's it. <laughs> anyway, so it, just some some thoughts that have come to me as I've been uh, working through some stuff. So I, I decided to share them with you. All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've, I am way behind on my email. <sighs> oh man, I, I've got a I've got several emails here from Pastor Charmley. I'm going to have to. Uh, um, let me pick one of them today, and maybe we'll get to some more uh, later this week. Uh, I got an email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley that I want to read today, talking about church leadership and splits in the church regarding leadership um, uh, paradigms, if you would. And then uh, we didn't get a chance to do this last week. I want to finish up the uh, it's part one point two of the article uh, by uh, Brad Braxton on uh, the getting in front of Jesus, the politics of progressive Christianity, the, it's talking about the authority of Scripture, and I thought it'd be important to uh, to read that. And uh, and then there's a, a story in the Christian Post that uh, hit the uh, hit the wires on Friday afternoon. Uh, Lutherans seek forgiveness for persecution of Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those... Uh, the ELCA and the World Federation of Lutherans apparently are <sighs> Yeah, I just I won't be joining them in that apology by the way. And then this is kind of a more subtle story if we get to it today. Um it's a story that uh let's see what's the name of it. Um shocking words to presbyterians is the name of the story and it's subtle. Terry Mattingly of uh, GetReligion.org um, has a piece that uh, showed up in uh, in the Decatur Daily and uh, worth passing along. Although it's 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 subtle, it's really subtle. But uh, the name of it is "Shocking Words to uh, Presbyterians." I want to pass that along today, and then I'm going to play kind of two videos, kind of intertwine them from time to time. I do that. And um, going back to one of the points I made earlier during the opening segment here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, and that is is that when people abandon the, the God's word, they attack it and impugn it, what you're left with is their own subjective ideas, their own subjective opinions. And so we're going to be listening to uh, two different videos, and I'm going to kind of braid them together because some of the, I mean, the stuff said in them is just outrageous. Uh, but one is a uh, Patricia King video with uh, Bobby Connor. And uh, that particular video is talking about, well, uh, angelic visitations and feathers, a, a similar, a common theme that we've been hearing from uh, the Patricia King ex- extreme prophetic gang. And then the second uh, comes from the third eagle of the apocalypse, uh, William Tapley. And uh, he, this was a video that came out a year ago. So this this particular one is a year old. And he's talking about uh, how... Um, a uh, an airplane crash uh, that killed 153 people was an attack by Satan against the Rosary. I, uh, you just gotta stay tuned to listen to it. Uh, so we'll be doing that as as we uh, finish up this first hour today, and then our sermon review in the second hour is from Vantage Point Church in Corona, California. They are currently doing a sermon series entitled "School of Rock." 
And the uh, sermon itself is supposedly based upon the uh, Green Day song, Boulevard of Broken Dreams. And uh, the pastor preaching, his name is Tom Lanning. And uh, so we're going to be reviewing that today in the second hour. And um, just by way of uh, kind of a heads up, um, Tom Lanning, at the very end of the sermon, gives something of a somewhat clear gospel presentation. It's a little bit better than your typical um, uh, gospel nugget, yeah, but it, we'll, we'll be dealing with uh, what he does there in, in the second hour. So we got lots and lots of ground to cover. Make yourself comfortable. Your listener experience is absolutely uh, important and vital to me, and as a result of it, I mean, I want you to absolutely have the the best possible listener experience. That being the case, kick up your feet, sit down, relax if you can, um, and if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, no problemo. We don't have a problem with that here at Fighting for the Faith, um, and of course, keep in mind, drunkenness, that's the sin. Um, you don't want to take it too far. So, and of course, fuzzy bunny slippers are absolutely in. And of course, if you don't have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers and you're looking to get a pair, uh, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, look along the left-hand side of the webpage there, just a little bit down from the top, you will see a link where you can actually purchase a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, uh, for yourself if you happen to be fuzzy bunny slipperless. But again, weather dictates whether you should be wearing that, because if you're wearing them during hot weather, it could cause your feet to sweat, and that would detract from your overall listener experience. So with that, let's uh, dive into the program proper, and let's cue up the email music here. From across the pond, somewhere in Great Britain, uh, Hanley uh, Stoke-on-Trent uh, the, the pastor who's so profound, he has four names. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. I say that lovingly because his emails are very brilliant. And uh, I'm a little bit behind on my emails, but uh, I'm going to do this one first. He was talking about leadership splits. If you remember, uh, we talked about uh, how there have been in the past churches who have split over different leadership paradigms and leadership models. Uh, Pastor Charmley, being the historian that he is, he writes, he says, Dear Chris, you're quite right that there have been a number of splits in the church over leadership models. The church split as we know it today is a relatively recent phenomenon. In the days of the powerful state churches up to the late 17th century, roughly speaking, Disagreement over such things was liable to lead to persecution. Often church government has been part of a wider theological disagreement, but to particularly in English Wesleyan Methodism, church leadership models have been the alone reason for church splits. There was also one split over in Oregon. Sounds painful. Okay, we continue. John Wesley formed societies after the pietist model, ostensibly setting up bodies within the Church of England. However, his societies had their own traveling preachers and local preachers and their own chapels. In effect, they were a church in all but name. During Wesley's lifetime, the traveling preachers would come together in conference with Wesley as a purely advisory body. In fact, he controlled the whole system. After Wesley's death, the, the conference took his place in what has been in effect an Episcopal system with Wesley as sole bishop. American Methodism is rather different than Wesley uh, gave it uh, gave it an Episcopal structure, became pres a Presbyterian body. Unlike traditional Presbyterianism, however, Wesley's system had no place for any representatives of the laity. The conference was a purely clerical body. This problem was made worse by the fact that Methodist preachers 
were not only circuit uh, were not only circuit ministers often in very wide circuits but were moved every few years staying in one circuit no longer than 3 years and therefore they were not pastors but preachers uh pastoring was done in the society some rightly objected that this meant that the members had no say at all in the government of the church and in 1797 they broke away forming a body called Methodist New Connection In the Methodist New Connection, the conference was made up equally of ministers and lay representatives. Meanwhile, in the Wesleyan body, the strife went on, leading to a number of further secessions in the first half of the 19th century, forming the independent Methodists, the Protestant Methodists, uh, they were Oregon uh, seceders, and Wesleyan Methodist Association and the Wesleyan Reform Union. All of these groups opposed the tyranny of the entire... the entirely clerical conference. In 1857, a majority of the Wesleyan Reformers and Wesleyan Reform Union formed the United Methodist Free Church. Yes, the Wesleyans were very active in dividing over the question of church leadership. Great historical note there. And I, what I think is interesting is that um, that today, uh, this whole idea of uh, the new church uh, leadership models that have been put in place as a result of the seeker-driven methods, um, what one of the things that happens in seeker-driven churches or churches that are transitioned into a seeker-driven model, the leadership model dramatically changes. And, uh, and this is all part and parcel of what's being taught and promoted by Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, and Bob Buford. That would be the uh, Druckerite unholy trinity, as I like to refer to them. And the idea is is that um, if you have a congregational model in, in, in your church whereby the, the pastor is accountable to the church directly via voters meeting, membership, things like that, all of that gets chucked out the window and lay... Uh, leaders uh, end up having zero say, absolutely zero say in what's going on, and, and accountability to the uh, to the um, uh, members of the church. That's completely gone too. Transparency's gone, accountability's gone. I mean, pretty much what they do is they change the church and they apply a Fortune 500 uh, business leadership model in the church, where the uh, the pastor is a CEO. He's a he's a vision casting CEO who who gets a mission and vision directly from God. And then he's the one to hold everybody else accountable for their part in helping the church achieve the stated mission and vision that have apparently come directly from God. And uh, if you don't like the mission and vision, you got to go. You there's no accountability, because if you voice any uh, any dissenting opinions, uh, well, they throw you on the street. You're gone. Your membership is, uh, well, it's washed up. It's canceled. Uh, you're no longer considered a, a, a member there. And I've received plenty of emails over the years of people who have voiced concerns and uh, called for accountability of seeker-driven pastors. And uh, the end result of which is not only were they uh, thrown out of the congregation and their membership revoked, uh, in some cases, some of them had uh, police restraining orders uh, issued against them uh, so that they couldn't tell their story to other people in the congregation. I mean, tyranny would be the right word when it comes to uh, seeker-driven pastors. I think it's interesting uh, that uh, in listening to the story or reading the story that Pastor Charmley sent along, 
that um, history appears to be repeating itself in some degree or another. Okay, moving along here. From the Huffington Post. Part 1.2 of the... um, the series that I've been, well, I, the article I've been reading from Brad R. Braxton, Getting in Front of Jesus, the Politics of Progressive Christianity. This was a long, um, this was a long article, and I didn't get a chance to get to this last little bit here um, that Brad Braxton writes from a progressive point of view about reconsidering biblical authority, reconsidering biblical authority. Now, remember what I said early on. In, in in this uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, people who want to teach false doctrine, they have got to find a way to attack the Bible, to demean it, to undermine it, to critique it, to belittle it, to anything to get it so that it doesn't authoritatively speak. Okay, And many times the folks that are engaging in these attacks engage in doublespeak. They'll say things like, listen, we hold the Bible in highest esteem. We love the scriptures. We, in fact, we love it more than any fundamentalist conservative would ever love the scriptures. But we love it enough to know that it's not true. We love it enough to know that the stories in there are not meant to bind our consciences and tell us what a sin is. We instead have a more enlightened and higher view of scripture, a higher view that allows us to basically have a free-for-all in doctrine and religious thought. It, that's just doublespeak is what it comes down to. So, I mean, when somebody has to sit there and tell you how much they love the scriptures and then w- the next thing out of their mouth is something that is absolutely contradicted by the scriptures, that's doublespeak. They're absolutely speaking out of both sides of the mouth. They ain't telling you the truth. Uh, what was the old term that um, the Native Americans used for uh, for the white folk who would promise them one thing and then do another? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, white man speak with forked tongue. Yeah, that's this is an example of this. Um, uh, Brad Braxton writes, he says, by providing greater nuance to discussions of the Bible's authority, progressive Christians can enhance more public discussions about religion and justice. Huh? By providing greater nuance? I have traveled in recent years to Ghana, England and South Africa to investigate how biblical interpretation aided colonialism or fueled social liberation. Additionally, I am active in interfaith dialogue. These international and interfaith experiences have reinforced the need to articulate a progressive understanding of the Bible for the sake of cultural harmony. As an evangelical, I am conversant with the Bible. As a prophetic evangelical, I realize that the Bible's record concerning justice and compassion is, well ambiguous. A brief discussion of the Bible's role in social oppression is instructive. The relationship between colonial Christianity and unjust biblical interpretation was evident as I visited the slave castles in Ghana where thousands of Africans were enslaved prior to being shipped to the Caribbean and the Americas in the 17th through the early 19th centuries. At the Cape Coast slave castle, the male slave dungeon was underneath the chapel where Europeans were reading and preaching from the Bible. Quite literally, colonial Christianity and its ungodly readings of scripture were propped up by the backs and bones of enslaved Africans. Now, hang on a second here. Um, What's interesting about this is is that he obviously is pointing out the fact that there, there would be something wrong here, okay? 
there was a church and on underneath the church was a slave dungeon and there were people who were praying to God as they were enslaving people. Capturing them, stealing them, you know. Um, hmm. Now is now he's pointing out that they were not correctly reading the Bible. Right. I would agree. This sounds like this is egregious. This is not biblical Christianity that we're dealing with. In fact, God's word says that those who are enslavers are practicing things that are contrary to sound biblical doctrine. I think that's in First Timothy chapter one, if I'm not mistaken. Um so he's correct that they had it. It's, it's not that they were, it, it was an unjust biblical interpretation. It was an unsound. They were teaching false doctrine. And as a result of it, they were thinking that God was pleased with what they were doing when if they had read their scriptures correctly, they would have understood that they were in sin and needed to repent. Okay. But from a progressive point of view, um, Still, pretty much anything goes. I mean, there is no hard and fast meaning as to what the scriptures say. But we continue. He says, furthermore, my interfaith conversations have revealed how exclusive approaches to Christian scripture frustrate interfaith dialogue and cooperation. Well, duh, Brad, they're supposed to. (laughs) When you read the scripture, uh, what communion does light have with darkness? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's he's complaining about the fact that if you uh, read the Bible with an exclusive approach, that it somehow causes a breakdown in interfaith dialogue and cooperation. Oh, that's so sad. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. Colleagues in other religious traditions have indicated to me the problematic nature of certain biblically sponsored conceptions of Christian evangelism. For example, Christian evangelism that presents Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life uh, perpetuates even if unintentionally, a genocidal impulse. That, oh, man. You see, we can't preach Jesus as the only way because it perpetuates a genocidal impulse. Uh, Can you give me the facts on that one, please? Seriously, if that were the case, then Christianity would be the most genocidal religion on planet Earth. And yet, examples of militant behavior on the part of Christians that it ended up in people's physical death, you know, kind of like, uh, let's say, the um, uh, the Crusades come to mind. I mean, it's not like they've never happened. But if, if, the, uh, if the exclusive claims of Christianity really did perpetuate and fuel genocidal impulses, then the Crusades would be the norm, not the exception. This is just ridiculous. Let me continue. This exclusive claim can represent the desire to eliminate all religious others, such as Muslim, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews, by converting them to Christian. Yes. Uh, And to Christians. Notice, um, I I want to um, point this out. He says, this exclusive claim can represent the desire to eliminate all religious others. The word eliminates kind of interesting because it has as it's it, what's implied there is kind of a murderous thought. So now if you want to convert somebody from from a false religion like Islam, Hinduism or Buddhism or today's version of Judaism, that that's somehow a murderous genocidal impulse and um and and it, it, it that, that illegally wants to uh, eliminate the religious other. Well, that's exactly what Christ told us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. There are people, if you read the book of Acts, people who, well, 
they stopped being the religious other when it came to Judaism as well as um as false idolatrous religions uh, such as the uh, the Roman pantheon of gods yeah we pretty much effectively eliminated the other when it came to the Roman pantheon of gods there's not a whole lot of people out there anymore um worshiping um Jupiter uh Zeus uh, I'm mixing uh, Roman and and uh and Greek deities here because the Romans basically ripped off the uh the Greek deities and just put their own names on them anyway yeah so you know look what we did oh man we there's there's not a lot of people out there worshiping Athena and all those folks hmm that's a problem I think an important question to ask at this point is where did Brad Braxton get the idea that um, the religious other is somehow a desirable thing? It's not found in Scripture. The first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. God, the, the God of the Scriptures, the God of the Bible, he is not interested in people maintaining an identity in a religion to a false deity. He calls all men in all nations to repent of idolatry and to worship the one true God, the God who died on the cross for all of their sins. So Brad Braxton, as somebody who claims to be a progressive Christian, somehow thinks that it's a good thing for, to have religious others. That's their phrase for it. The, that's just a, the, the, the purpose of that phrase, religious other, is to basically convolute things so that people somehow think that that's a positive thing. It's not. Those people who are worshiping Allah, the, God, the, the, the gods of the Hindus, are, practice the Buddhist uh, religious ethic, um, even modern-day Judaism, because they deny that Jesus is the Messiah, they are caught up in false religious systems. And they do not properly acknowledge the one true God, and they are guilty of idolatry. And that sin was atoned for and propitiated by the work of Christ on the cross, and Christ calls them to repent and be forgiven. Yet Brad Braxton, because of his denial of Scripture, he does this doublespeak here, thinks it's somehow a good thing to have religious others. But if you understand the Scriptures and you listen to them and what God has said, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. <clears throat> Brad continues. He says, Interpretations of the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, restricting salvation to Christians come from conceptions of biblical authority that ultimately reject the validity of all other religious traditions and sacred texts. Um, Brad, it's far more than John, chapter 14, verse 6. Have you ever read the Old Testament? I mean, the, the Old Testament is like a long-running story of, of God calling his people out of idolatry. Um, you remember the whole showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Um, there was uh, the prophets of Baal calling out to, to Baal, oh, Baal, please save us. Show yourself, and Baal didn't respond. Why? Because he's not there. Not only are the lights not on, there's nobody home. There never has been. Baal never existed. He doesn't exist. He's a false god. And it was a bad thing. 
to be worshiping Baal. And it always has been and it always will be. So it's more than John 14, 6. That's, what, that's like the whole subplot of the entire Old Testament. <clears throat> These approaches present an exclusive Jesus who banishes his billions of people to hell simply because they encounter the sacred somewhere other than Christianity. Again, no. It's not that they encountered the sacred somewhere other than Christianity. They never did experience the sacred because if they had, they would have repented of their sins and idolatry and worshiped the one true God. Where did you, what makes you think they're experiencing the sacred? It, it, according to scripture, they're not experiencing the sacred. They're experiencing the satanic. <clears throat> On the other hand, the biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine offers a religiously inclusive reading of John 14:6. She creates a, a humorous imaginative scene where a narrow Christian protests that Levine, who is Jewish, is saved and admitted into heaven. In order to resolve the issue, Jesus intervenes and, and responds to the narrow Christian. By the way, this story is not found in the Bible, <clears throat> but let me read. Levine writes, If you flip back to the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice in chapter 25 at the judgment of the sheep and the goats, I'm not interested in those who say, Lord, Lord, but in those who do their best to live a righteous life, feeding the hungry, visiting people in prison. Oh, how funny. Another misinterpretation of the parable, uh, basically the sheep and the goat judgment uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. Folks, um, the one point that everyone seems to miss is the judgment of, the separation takes place before any discussion takes place um, regarding good works or bad works. Mm -hmm. The judgment takes place by what they are, not what they did. They were separated by species. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. That The judgment already is done. Once they're separated, it's done. It's a done deal. You're separated by what you are. The only way you can go from being a goat to being a sheep is Jesus Christ turning you into one. By nature, we're all born goats. We are all born dead in trespasses and sins. Salvation is a is basically a regenerative work done by God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And through the preaching of the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, people are transformed basically taken from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. I want to point this out to you. Uh, uh, <clears throat> David Wan did a great Bible study on this yesterday at church, and uh, it's fresh on my mind. Um, let me... Uh, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to begin at verse 3. I want to point this out to you in context. He says, uh, Paul writes, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. For of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so as to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, and all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here, I mean, I mean, this is so clear. I mean, there's other passages I can go to. But the idea is, is that all of us by nature, look at, uh, you can cross-reference this with like Ephesians chapter 2 or even Romans chapter 3. The idea is, is that all of us are unrighteous. All of us are sinful. There's none righteous. No, not one. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. Here, uh, we have uh, Paul talking about how before before the gospel came to us, we were under the domain of darkness, and that God has qualified us in Christ to share in, the, in, in this heavenly inheritance, and God is the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the uh, redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So, uh, Levine here is is completely misreading uh, Matthew 25 because she thinks that, uh, well, in Matthew 25, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is basically letting anybody in who who does their best to live a righteous life and feed the hungry and visit people in prison. No, 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 no. Uh, they were separated by their species. The sheep and the goats were separated by what they are. Those who've been transferred from the kingdom of, of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, those are the ones who have received and believed and trusted in God for the forgiveness of their sins. And they do good works by nature because that's what sheep do. Okay? Levine says, Jesus continues, I'm saying that I am I am the way, not you, not your church, not your reading of John's gospel, not the claim of any individual Christian or any particular congregation. I am making the determination, and it is by my grace that anyone gets in, including you. Don't you? Do you want to argue? Oh, this is ridiculously ridiculous. This is from the book, The Misunderstood Jew, The Church, and the Scandal of the Jewishness of Jesus. The Bible also has played a significant role in the oppression of women. The theologian Martha Simmons comments on this sad truth. By the way, um, the oppression of women, well, what, is that, what does that equal? Well, if, if you don't have a woman as a pastor, you won't allow that. That's oppressing women. Again, here we've got these, I, these supposed morals that, that the Bible is being judged by. Okay, it's bad if you if you have an exclusive religious claim that excludes people having experiences of the sacred apart from Christ and his word. That's supposedly bad. Yeah, Where did you get the idea that it was good, Brad? Where is it written that that's a good thing? Here we go. Oh, man. <clears throat> women have been uh, written, of, uh, written out of history and their bodies have been made irrelevant and therefore acceptable as sacrifices for slaughter in the Bible and in contemporary churches which do not consider women living images of God and all with all rights and privileges attendant uh, thereto. R what? Martha Simmons wrote that women have been written out of history. Have you read Jesus' um, genealogy? Not only are there women in the, in the in the direct line of Jesus Christ, there's prostitutes. <laughs> 
When, so, no, they haven't been written out of history. Read the Old Testament. I mean, you ever read the book of Ruth? About Ruth and Naomi? You ever read Esther? There, There's some powerful women in the Bible. <clears throat> oh, man, this is ridiculous. Um, Women have been written out of history, and their bodies have been made irrelevant and therefore acceptable as sacrifices for slaughter in the Bible. Um, Really? Where are all these mass female sacrifices in the Bible? I don't recall any virgins being thrown into volcanoes in the Bible. I, I just that just doesn't even ring a bell. In light of of this genocidal impulse against women, the theologian genocidal impulse apparently uh, now. <laughs> So if you believe in the exclusivity of Christ, you have a genocidal murderous thoughts against people in other religions. And um, if you believe in, the, in, you know, take the Bible literally, you now have genocidal impulses against women. This is, you know, this is not, this is propaganda of the worst kind. No, I don't have any genocidal impulses against women. And you be lying if you say otherwise. This is ridiculous. I mean, this are words that have no meaning. So apparently you Christians out there, if you take the Bible literally, you must have genocidal impulses against women. The theologian Mercy Aduyer raises a pertinent question. What does this the gospel when preached really do to affect betterment in women's lives? Why is that even? It, oh, man. No, no understanding of biblical history, too. Christianity really did elevate women above, you know, the, the way they were treated uh, in Roman cult, in, in Roman civilization, in the Greco-Roman civilization, even in Middle, in Middle Eastern cult, cultures. Oh, man. I mean, this is just absolute. This is a complete liberal rewrite of history. And these questions that are being raised, I mean, first of all, I mean, they're they're being raised in such a way that they're not historically accurate. They, it's propaganda. It's not even true. I mean, it's begging the question. It's all kinds of stuff that's going on here. I mean, these are straw men at best. Anyway, I, that's about all that I can stomach. <laughs> if you want to read the rest of it, it, it is available at the Huffington Post in the religion section. Uh, Brad R. Braxton's The Politics of Progressive Christianity. Boy, do I feel like this is going to end up having to be something that I do some writing with. Okay, we're well past our um, our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Ugh. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Boo's Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. 
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if you're getting information that contradicts the Bible, you're not teaching what God's Word says. I don't care how moral you think you sound. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, looking here. Okay, I'm going to have to move two stories till tomorrow. I'm just looking at the time here. I ran a little long in that uh, first segment. Um, I'm going to talk tomorrow about the Lutherans seeking for forgiveness for persecution of Anabaptists and then the shocking words to Presbyterians, that article written by Terry Mattingly of GetReligion.org. I'm going to move that to tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So stay tuned. I I overprepared here today. Um, what I want to do though, kind of, um, in the same vein of what we've been, if you've been, if you just tuned in, what you missed is that we, um, I just read part of, uh, the uh, progressive Christian in quotation marks, con, con, considerations regarding biblical authority. And what happens is, is that they, they claim to have a high view of scripture while attacking what the scripture says. And when that happens, you end up basically coming up with ideas about you know that uh, uh, about how God is supposed to be but those ideas aren't grounded in what God has revealed about himself and that's ultimately what we were seeing there going on uh with Brad Braxton's piece you know God was being judged uh because uh, well God gives exclusive claims about himself you shall have no other gods before me Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except for through me and uh, that's clearly understood in light of what Scripture says as far as repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and trusting in Christ. Those who believe in Christ are saved, and those who do not remain under the wrath of God, as uh, John chapter 3 says. And so what happens is is that people engage in all kinds of 
interesting, neat little word games and parlor tricks as a means of trying to circumvent, subvert, and eliminate what God's Word says and to exalt their own ideas as ideas that have their origin in the mind of God. So what happens is is that what God's Word teaches about the proper complementary role of men and women, that they, that they are both created in the image of God, that they have complementary but different roles, that gets attacked. And basically, what if you believe that, then you are, you're for genocidal views of women. No, you're not. That's inflammatory lying and propaganda about Christians. Okay, so my question is, where did you get the idea? that your ideas regarding the, the, the role and function of men and women and their different roles, that, they, that they're supposed to all be the same, where did you get that idea? Who revealed that to you? And why are you using that to judge the Bible? By what authority are you doing that? See, that's what has to happen here because these folks are coming, they're basically attacking the Bible while claiming that they have a high view of Scripture. And they always veil themselves in religious language, but their religion attacks what God's Word says. Therefore, it's not a religion that truly abides in the words of Christ. It's, an, it's, it's a false religion and an idolatrous religion that is at war with biblical Christianity, and you have to see it that way. Now, um, one of the things we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we regularly feature Patricia King, uh, Bobby Connor. Now he's becoming a regular uh, feature, as well as William Tapley. And I'm going to—I I, I throw them in here at the end, not for comedic relief, although what they say is comical in some senses. It's—it's it's absurd. But this is exactly. Here's the deal: there is no qualitative difference. No qualitative difference between Patricia King, William Tapley, Bobby Connor, and progressive Christians. None. No, none whatsoever. There's no qualitative difference. The reason why there is no qualitative difference, they all are exalting their own absurd ideas and, and basically are deluded and deceived into thinking that their ideas about God are true. Now, Patricia King spins a, a bizarre yarn, and they're silly stories. William Tapley, I mean, the guy's a taco short of a combo plate. But here's the deal. I challenge you to you know, answer the question. Can you give me a qualitative difference between the bizarre ideas of William Tapley, Patricia King, Bobby Connor, and uh, Brad Braxton? One, you know, Brad Braxton sounds far more sophisticated. I mean, he's a progressive. He writes for the Huffington Post. That's supposedly, a, you know, a, a great religious journal of note of some kind. I mean, he's studied theology. He's a, he's, a, he's a professor. So his ideas are every bit as kooky as Patricia King's ideas. And the only reason why they sound uh, sound like they have some authority to them is because uh, this guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but it's every bit as goofy as that stuff. Anyway, let's go ahead and listen to uh, this audio. Well, I've got to do this because this is a tradition here at Fighting for the Faith. We can't play Patricia King without doing this. Fractured fairy tales. And that's what this is. all of this is. Progressive... Patricia King, doesn't matter. They've chucked the word of God. And their own bizarre ideas have been elevated to a place where they don't belong. Here's uh, 
Patricia King and introducing um, Bobby Connor. Hi, the last number of months have been over the top awesome with God. We've been having an amazing time watching God do do just the stuff he said he'd do in the Bible, like heal the sick and, and uh, touch broken lives and bind up their broken hearts. That's what the anointing is for. But there's also a whole pile of signs and wonders, gemstones falling, glitter falling. And one of the things we've noticed is feathers. In fact, when we were in... New- New Orleans over the- oh, man. where in the Bible does it say that uh, feathers are supernatural the summer um, there was one meeting that we did where a, a baby eagle feather fell in a meeting over the years we've had um, different types of feathers I remember when an angel named Swift um, showed up at the very first time it ever manifested um, in in my midst, it was um, an, an eagle type of angel. But right after it manifests in a vision, about two days later, I got all these eagle feathers all over my office floor, down the stairway, into my home. After a- did she take them to a geneticist? I mean, how did they know? How did she know they were eagle feathers? And if they were eagle feathers, what makes you think they popped out of the spiritual world? Prosperity angel. Um, appeared. It was a number of days later when when a green feather appeared, which was the exact same color that I saw the angel. I mean, it's strange, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's not biblical. Okay. She's got all these bizarre ideas. Well, the progressives have a bunch of bizarre ideas too. Theirs just sound a little bit more educated, but they their origin is the same. It's not in the mind of God. It's in the imagination of whoever speaking it's strange but that's what signs and wonders are for god shows a sign and it makes us wonder you know oh man but it causes us to stand in awe of god well you're about to hear a testimony from bobby connor as he talks about feathers falling is it strange yep but god is that awesome God doesn't talk about feathers. Okay, now we'll kind of ravel this uh, in. Here is a a video from a year ago from uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, talking about how Satan was trying to attack the rosary. Listen carefully. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. Today, for the second time in a little over two weeks, Satan has used a plane crash in his attempt to discredit the rosary. The Caspian airliner that went down this morning carried 153 passengers and 15 crew members. 153, of course, is the number of Hail Marys in a complete three mystery rosary. I had no idea that that was the case. I don't do the three mystery rosary. And 15 is a number of decades in a complete three-mystery rosary. As you may recall, a little over two weeks ago, a Yemeni plane crashed with 153 passengers. All but one were killed. God saved one teenager in order that Satan could not discredit the number 153. So why did God allow Satan to kill 153 passengers and 15 crew members today. Satan succeeded today in his attempt to besmirch the rosary 
because he was willing to take down a Gog Magog airplane. Ah, yeah, right. Because Satan, by taking down that Gog Magog airplane, was trying to besmirch the the rosary. <clears throat> Here's Bobby Connor. I'll tell you about when the feathers begin to fall. Uh, that I, I love the signs. I, I'll tell you what, I don't care what God does just so he does whatever he wants to. And um, one time we were in a meeting. Yeah, because you have a big God. Because you, you don't care what God does as long as he does what he wants to do. I mean, that's so generous of you to let God do that. Because the last thing we'd want to do is put God in a box. And there were a whole bunch of people in this big old church. I'm talking about a lot of people. And the pastor of that church, uh, I'm up there preaching, and, and the pastor's a very godly man and he's seated on the front row of, of the the sanctuary and the whole building's full of people i'm up there preaching and all of a sudden in slow motion a feather about this long about maybe three and a half inches long just a white feather appears up in the air and it begins to drift down just like this slow like a snowflake right over the head of the pastor i'm watching it and so is all the people in the room they're watching this feather and so the pastor sees it also and then he reaches his hand up for it and when he reaches his hand up for it it goes back up in the air and then it goes back up like that and then it starts drifting back down again and when it gets low enough the pastor reaches for it again it goes back up in the air now i'm trying to preach everybody in the building me included it's like a tennis match they're watching the feather they're they're just watching the feather and boy he could tell a good story can he he does a far better job than william tapley i said lord either land that feather or get it out of here and then the lord spoke to him he said nope what's going to have to happen is the man of god the leader of this fellowship will have to stand to his feet and reach it uh, reach up and get the feather in front of all the people and the moment the lord said that the pastor stood to his feet and reached his hand up like that and the feather drifted down and he, he picked up the feather you said god's got more to do than drop feathers listen god will do whatever it takes to get our attention and god's been speaking but we hadn't been listening so god has spoken and we haven't been reading um okay let's continue here um caspian airlines is a combination of russia and iran this is the exact same coalition that comprises gog magog satan in his desperate attempt to discredit mary's rosary was even willing to destroy a Gog Magog plane and all the people on it in his desperate attempt to thwart Mary. Satan can read the Bible. He knows that way back in Genesis 3.15, notice again the rosary numbers, that Mary and her seed are destined to crush the serpent's head. Satan knows that his time is short. Uh, that's already happened, William. Uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ... Okay, now, let's, a little bit more from Bobby Connor. God is going to begin to intensify these signs and wonders where we'll really begin to search and seek for him in a wonderful, wonderful way. He wants to make himself known, doesn't he? Oh, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Don't you want to cry that out? Oh, Lord, open the heavens, rend the heavens and come down. We're living in a time when we're going to see signs and wonders on a level we've never seen before in our whole life. They're already on their way right now. So um, uh, what God wants to do, I think, is rip away from the face of the church this old mask of sameness, expecting the next service to be like the one we was just in. And he's going to read. Yeah, none of this is found in the Bible. Okay. This is just crazy. I mean, we have a Bible, but nobody seems to be opening it. Apparently, you know, we've got feathers falling from the sky, and that's supposed, and then God talking directly to Bobby Connor, 
We've got William Tapley uh, exegeting airplane crashes and finding in those airplane crashes that Satan was trying to dismirch the rosary of Mary, and none of this is taught in Scripture. And then we have what I just read. Brad Braxton, writing as a progressive Christian, my interfaith conversations have revealed how exclusive approaches to Christian Scripture frustrates interfaith dialogue and cooperation. Uh, where in the Bible does it say that interfaith dialogue and cooperation is a good thing? All of these people have one thing in common. They're, well, the right term to use for them, they're enthusiasts. And what I mean by that is not that they're enthusiastic. Yay, Jesus! No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that they claim to be getting information about God apart from and separate from his word that contradicts his word or completely ignores his word. All of these people have their own little religious religions that they've created out of their imaginations. And God's word is judged according to this revelation that they've set up, these new morals that they've created. No, it doesn't work that way. God's word is true, and it's to be understood by reading it in context. Nowhere in the scripture does it teach that chicken feathers falling from the sky is a sign from God. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that Satan is trying to besmirch the rosary and the number 153. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that interfaith dialogue and cooperation is a good thing and that it's a bad thing when uh, we don't recognize that other people in other religions are experiencing the sacred. They're not. God's word clearly says that they're not. You see the common theme here? All of these folks are getting their knowledge about God apart from his word. That's today's 21st century version of idolatry. And it needs to be re- repented of. And forgiven, for Christ truly did die on the cross, even for these sins of idolatry. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My uh, email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. (laughs) 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Time for the sermon review music. Maestro, hit it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from uh, Vantage Point Church, Corona, California, Pastor Tom Lanning presiding. The name of the sermon series is called School of Rock. Oh, man. I, I, by the way, I cannot stand Jack Black. I, 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 any movie that he's in, I, I hate. It just always turns out that way. So I'm not a fan of the movie School of Rock, nor do I think it's appropriate fodder for a... Um, sermon, but the uh, School of Rock sermon is supposedly somewhat loosely based upon the theme from the um, Green Day song, Boulevard of Broken Dreams. You know, the question (laughs) immediately comes to mind, um, when did, um, uh, when did, um, Green Day become a Christian band. Hmm. Yeah. Let me kill the music here. So, uh, with... Oh, man. Ah, I mean, when are we just going to get back to, you know, preaching the Bible and God's Word? Now, as you listen to the sermon, what I would like you to do is I want you to listen carefully to how... Uh, Tom here uses God's word. The reason I say that is uh, because there's, there's something, something's off here, and that is is that as we re- as he listens to these stories, um, he he completely rips them out of their their greater context. 
He's going to be uh, referencing Joseph, but before that, he's going to be referencing David. Apparently, you know, David uh, experienced Plan Bs in his life, and you know, and his his dreams were broken and dashed. So were Joseph's. And notice how he's using God's word. And what you'll see is is that he's ripping it so far out of context that we're missing where these stories fit into the grand narrative of our salvation. Because ultimately, the story of David and the story of Joseph point us to Christ. And uh, now, to his to uh, Tom's. Uh, credit. He's going to end on a gospel note. He's gonna, and it's gonna be a main point. This, it's gonna be more than a gospel nugget. You hear the gospel in the sermon, uh, but the problem is, is it doesn't make a lot of sense because he doesn't correctly explain sin. Well, you'll see how this goes along the way. So, uh, without any further ado, let's let's dive into the sermon. And since it's based upon the Green Day move uh, song, we need to we need to play some Green Day. Yeah, I, I really enjoy guys who wear heavy eyeliner and mascara. I walk a lonely road, the only one that I have ever known. Don't know where it goes, but it's only me and I walk along. I walk this empty street on the Now, I, since this is supposedly now the uh, the song that makes up the the primary focus or the idea behind the sermon, I'd, should we be raising our hands in the air and praising the the Lord at this point? Do you feel the spirit moving? You, I, I, I'm not feeling anything. You know that guy looks nothing like Jesus. I, you know, I'm watching the video as the music's playing. He, no, he he looks like death warmed over. So, uh, insert your favorite praise uh, chorus concept here. No, he really does look like a walking corpse. I walk alone. Maybe if this is an allusion to that uh, poem about footprints in the sand.
And now for the sermon, based upon Boulevard of, well, at least some kind of reference to Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Hey, um, I always feel like I have to give this disclaimer when I'm speaking. My name is not Mark Lee, okay? And we have an amazing teaching pastor here, and every once in a while, he takes the day off and he asks me to fill in for him. And so I want to let you know, if you're a first-timer here, it gets a lot better than this. It really does, okay? I mean, but, but a lot of you know me, right? Okay, so you're not, you're not here to be uh, impressed anyways. Okay, good. Hey, um, before Green Day made that song popular, right? The term Boulevard of Broken Dreams was most often used to refer to a very famous street. Anybody know what the street is? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. It's, it's, it's in Hollywood. It's Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard through the years has kind of become the symbol of, you know, many, many, many untold broken dreams of untold dreamers who came to Hollywood searching for that elusive thing known as stardom, right? Or maybe you've seen this picture. It's kind of a famous picture. Um, it hangs in the Louvre, actually, in Paris. And it's a picture uh, depicting this diner kind of suspended in time with those four iconic tragic figures in it. Um, each one of those people kind of have come to represent broken dreams and shattered promises, haven't they? How many of you are old enough? How many of you are experienced enough to remember when Elvis Presley died? Anybody? I even remember when Elvis died. How about uh, Humphrey Bogart? Anybody remember when Humphrey Bogart died? Okay. How about Marilyn Monroe? Anyone remember when Marilyn died? You guys are old. No, I'm just... How about James Dean? Anybody alive? I don't even remember what year it was. Anybody alive when James Dean died? Does anybody know who James Dean was? Is. He's not the sausage king. Okay. Well, okay. And let me ask you this then. Do you remember the day that you discovered that your life wasn't quite going to turn out the way you thought? Because it happens to all of us, doesn't it? I mean... Somewhere along the line, plans kind of fizzle or expectations come to nothing. Um, maybe a trusted friend's let you down or you've let your... Okay, question. Is, is this a major theme of the Bible? Is this what the Bible really is about, addressing this idea? When was the day that you realized your, the dreams that your life came crashing down? When, what, I mean, isn't this terrible? I mean, you had dreams of being a movie star. You wanted to be a fighter pilot. You wanted to be a... Uh, world famous, uh, you wanted to be the president of the, uh, and your dreams came crashing down. Oh, this is sad. This is terrible. Can Jesus fix your boulevard of broken dreams? Is, is this what Christianity addresses? Yourself down, but whatever it was, the dreams, the plans, the goals, the desires that you had for your life just kind of shattered or they just kind of slipped away. I mean, my guess is it's possible today that the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, all right, that it runs right down Cleveland Avenue, right through the parking lot, right into the lobby, right into this auditorium, down these aisles, and it actually goes right to some of the seats that you guys are sitting in. Oh, no, there's victims of broken dreams there in the church. <gasps> I hope Jesus can fix this. Matter of fact, I would guess, if I were a betting man, that I'm talking to a lot of people who know what it's like to be in the midst of a plan B, right? You guys know what plan B is, right? I mean, plan B, I mean, plan A is 
you know, this is what's supposed to happen. Plan A is good. These are my dreams, my goals, my desires. You graduate from high school. You got all the, you know, gusto and plan A. You're going to go here to college and this is, and everything's kind of unfolding like that. And you're thinking, hey, this life thing is pretty easy. And you're going and all of a sudden, wham, from out of nowhere, from left field, plan B plants itself squarely in your path, right? And um, I don't know, maybe it could be a sudden illness or maybe it's a loss of a family member or a close friend or maybe it's, um, maybe it's a financial reversal, maybe it's a horrible experience at a church. Um, you know, I don't know what it was, but somewhere along the line, you just kind of, your life just didn't kind of end up the way you thought it would, right? Now, if there's any of you who are sitting in here right now and you say, I don't really know what you're talking about, okay? My life has been plan A all the way, baby. I mean, everything that I try, I'm successful at. My life is awesome. I've never seen a plan B, okay? I've got news for you, all right? The rest of us, we hate you. No, we really hate you. <laughs> I've got to point something out here. Does this sermon apply to somebody who, well, is living their dreams? I mean, let's say that, you know, somebody wanted to be an attorney when they grew up. They, they went to law school. They became an attorney. They became a, 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 a practicing lawyer in a, in, a, in a reputable law firm. Maybe they went to Harvard Law. And then, and then on top of it, you know, they, they got the job that they had always wanted and was able to uh, become a partner in the law firm pretty at a pretty young age. Does Jesus have anything to offer that person? Or is Jesus only for the people who live on the boulevard of broken dreams? <laughs> no, we don't hate you. But the news is, is that plan B is coming. I'm not the type of person who, I'm not saying that to be dramatic or. But what if it doesn't come? That's the good news that plan B is coming. Oh, don't worry. You'll get yours. You know, I don't look over my shoulder or wait for the other shoe to drop. But it's just true, isn't it? And the reason I know this is because a lot of plan B's actually are our fault, aren't they? We bring a lot of plan B's into our own lives because of the decisions we make. I mean, maybe you can relate to this. You know, you're sitting in your jail cell, you know, and you're saying, why, God? You know, and the voice comes from on high. And it's not God's voice. It's, it's Freddie, your celly. He's in the bunk above you. And he's like, because you jacked that old lady for her electric scooter, knucklehead, you know. But... Some plan B's are just our faults, right? Maybe those are the easier ones to deal with, but some plan B's are, are things that other people do to us. And probably the hardest plan B's of all to accept. Maybe they're, they're the ones that, that, that maybe you can't blame anybody. You can't really... <clears throat> What's, where's the sin in this? And what, is, what did Christ do in regards to these things? I mean, if you're in prison because you stole an old lady's scooter, isn't that a sin? It, ah, here, here again. Wh who is this sermon about? You is this? Uh, is this sound biblical doctrine? No, it's not. This is a bizarre theme to say the least. But they're relevant though, because you know their their sermon series, School of Rock, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, Green Day. Yeah, we're relevant. We're hip and we're hot. We're happening. We're hot. Um, but um. When it comes to preaching what the Bible says clearly, yeah, something's not happening here. Blame yourself. You can't really blame someone else. Maybe the only person you could blame is God. 
I mean, who plans to have cancer when they're 35 years old? I mean, no one plans to be... Can you talk about the relationship to all the bad things that happen in this world to our sinful nature and the cursed creation as a a result of our rebellion against God? Don't you think that would be the perfect tie-in here? Divorce twice before they're 40. No one plans to get laid off from a job they've had forever when they're 55. And yet these things happen to us, don't they? I mean, maybe you wanted to have kids. Everybody else is having kids, and you're not. Maybe you had the college of your dreams, and you didn't get into it. Maybe you want to be married, and you've been in weddings, but they've never been your own. This seems like such a narcissistic theme. You know, when I was a kid growing up, it's hard to talk about. I was never asked to be in a wedding. Not once. My brother, he was asked to be in weddings. My sister, she was asked to be in weddings. My little sister in a lot of weddings. What's wrong with me that no one would want me in their wedding? Could be the fact that they don't make tuxes in that short and wide. I don't know. But for some reason, my boulevard of broken dreams, I'm pretty sure, began when I was a little kid and I wasn't ever in a wedding. I'm pretty sure that's why I got married before my brother and sister. Just go, I have what could be in a stinking wedding. Serious. This is just... You know? Whatever the case, whatever the cause of your plan B is or of mine, when your dreams and your realities don't match up, it's hurt. It hurts. It's hard. And the questions that we begin to question are why? How did I get here? God, what are you doing? And those are the questions that I want to kind of work through with you today, okay? As you're in the middle of your plan B, and you might be asking some of those same questions, let's see if we can find something. Let's see if we can find something from, from this book. Because I have a feeling that this ancient scriptures right here, that it truly has something to say to us today. That God truly has something that he wants us to hear about where we might be in our plan Bs today. Now, here's what I'm not going to do, Okay. I'm not going to try to, you know, use fan. You know, I think they're doing this on the wrong song. I, I, I'm absolutely convinced he's doing the wrong song here. Shouldn't be Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Should be this one here. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden along with the sunshine. There's got to be a little sometime when you take you gotta give so live and let live or let go I beg your pardon I never promised you a rose garden yeah see I think that would be the right I mean Boulevard of Broken Dreams where in the Bible are we promised that our dreams God, yeah God never promised us a rose garden I think that's the better way of putting it yeah, they're doing this on the wrong song. But then again, it wouldn't fit with the School of Rock theme. But it would be closer to the truth. Fancy words or boil it all down into some tiny little Christian platitude that's really easy to stick on a bumper sticker and we can all put it on our car and, you know, just let go and let God, you know. And if you have that on your car, I'm not ripping on you, please. I'm just saying I'm not going to be able to do that, okay. But what I am going to do is, is, is we're going to take a look at the Scriptures, Okay. Because Jesus Christ himself said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
Right. Yeah. Can you put that in context for us? Now, I want you to pay close attention. What he's, what he's doing here is he started with a theme, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, and now he's searching the scriptures to find examples of guys who had broken dreams. This isn't sound biblical doctrine. Right? And if Jesus said that, then I don't think that we're going to be able to find a way to maneuver around the heartache and heartbreaks of this life. But we're going to need to figure out what does God say when we're smack dab in the middle of it. Okay? The Bible's filled with stories of men and women who were people just like us. I know you think of them and I think of them off the time as just Bible, stu- Bible stories and Bible characters, but they're true stories written about people like you and me. People who found it very difficult to go through a life. People who thought that their lives would turn out one way and they turned out another way. People who knew what it was like to walk down the boulevard of broken dreams. We're going to look at two of those guys today, okay? And we're going to try to find out what we can learn from their lives to help us as we walk through our lives together. So let's pray. Let's ask God to illuminate his word to us today. God, you are amazing and awesome. God, you know I am not eloquent, God, but you know that your word is pure truth. And so today, I just want to preach your word. God, I want to say only what you want me to say, and I want you to keep me from saying anything that you don't want me to say, God. Um, if you want God to answer that prayer, Tom, then you need to really spend some time studying God's word. God, thank you for illuminating your word to us today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Okay. Now we're going to take a look at, at, at the Bible here. Okay. So we're going to look at a few scriptures. I want you guys to get ready to go with me on this journey. The two guys we're going to look at today pretty much epitomize a life filled with plan B's. Okay. They knew what it was like to have plan B after another. Now the stories we're going to look at they're going to really react to these plan B's in two very different ways. And where they end up is a direct result of how they acted when they were in the middle of their plan B's. The first guy we're going to look at is a guy whose life can be found in the book of 1 Samuel. Okay, so I'm going to let you turn there right now if you want to. 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's in the Old Testament. And the guy we're going to be looking at is a guy named David. Now, David, if you're not really familiar with him, David was the shepherd boy who would become king. And you might think, you know, if you don't know a lot about David, you might think, well, he couldn't have had that many broken dreams if he was a shepherd who became king, right? But the reality is, is David had a life that was filled, filled with heartache and heartbreak. A lot of it he brought on himself. Some of it he didn't. But he had a life that was just filled with it. And what we're going to see is how he reacted to it in this instance and what we can learn from that. 1 Samuel 21 is beginning a story, but until, but, but I want to kind of get us up to, up to where this story starts, okay? So here's David's life in a nutshell up until then. David is a shepherd boy. David is anointed by, Saul, by Samuel, um, the, the, the prophet. He's anointed to become king. And then after Samuel tells David he's going to be king, Samuel just leaves, and David's still just there tending his sheep. Okay, but then David's dad says, David, go to the, your brothers and take them some lunch. They're on the front line fighting the Philistines and Israel's army. So David goes and sees his brother, and he also sees this giant Philistine giant named Goliath. Okay, you guys are, you're there. Um, Goliath is shaking his fist and challenging the armies of the living God. And David says, what? He says, why are we letting this guy do this? And the guys say, because we're so scared. He's a big giant. And David says, hey, when I was a shepherd, I killed a bear and I killed a lion. And the same God that helped me do that can help me kill this giant too. And so David goes out without any armor and he takes his stones. You know the story. He puts it in a sling. He twirls his sling around and he throws the stone and it hits the giant square between the eyes. Goliath files down dead. And I love David because he's not, he's not, that's not enough for him. He runs over to the giant 
giant. He doesn't just kick the dead giant when he's down, but he actually pulls his sword out. I love this. Some of you won't, especially some of you women, but this is so awesome. He takes the sword, the Goliath sword, and he chops the giant's head right off. And I'm pretty sure, the Bible does not say this, please understand, this is Tom's version, but I'm pretty sure he probably had his face painted half blue, half white. He probably picked up the head and held it over his head, ah, and all the Philistines ran away. But at any rate, whatever happened, the Philistines were routed, David became a national hero. And, and David was brought into the king's palace, Saul the king, it says, loved David like a son. And I know David thought, plan A is working out pretty good, isn't it? I mean, here I am, I am now, I went from a know-nothing, I am nothing, into I'm living in the palace of the king. Now, I'm not sure... When David realized that plan B might be kind of around the corner, maybe it was, you know, just kind of a sideways look. Or maybe... Okay, what's missing from this story? <clears throat> Is the story of David a rags to riches, uh, pull yourself up by your bootstrap, living the American dream story? No, it's not. There's something missing in all of this, Okay. And that is, is that, you know, if you read this story in its context, and it's, that would take a little bit more time than we have in a, in a radio program. You need to go and you need to read 1 Samuel, but don't begin there. Read Judges first. Read Exodus before that. You know, read Joshua before that. What happens is, is that you have this grand narrative. And so we're picking this kind of up in the middle of the, of the midstream. Let me give you the highlights. God calls Abraham, says he's going to bless the entire world, all nations through his seed, which is the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay. Abraham's relatives, his, you know, his son, Isaac, who is born to him in his old age. Okay has children, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob, he has 12 children, uh, 12 men, uh, boys. And uh, one of them is uh, sold into slavery in Egypt. And he ends up saving everybody because God is the one who sent them, sent him there. And what we're following in the Old Testament is the scarlet thread of of Jesus Christ, Scarlet really talking about the blood of Christ that, that saves us all because we're following the story of a particular people, a particular clan, a particular gen, you know, uh, generation after generation, a lineage that points us to and brings us to Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, dying on the cross for all of our sins. When we pick up this story, with Saul and David, there's a little bit, there's a little bit going on here. Number one, after God frees, uh, Israel from slavery in Egypt, uh, through Moses, he then brings them into the promised land. It takes 40 years for that to happen because an entire generation has to die out because they, they did not believe and trust in God. Even the God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. So they end up dying in the wilderness. And then, um, and then they're, sons and daughters are the ones who go in and take possession of the promised land of Israel and uh, through Joshua. And then what happens is, is that you, you read in the story of judges, how the Israelites constantly become ensnared by idolatry. And so God sells them. This is the term used in scripture. God sells them into the hands of the Moabites. He sells, sells them into the hands of the Philistines and God has to end up delivering them. He raises up a judge to deliver them and ultimately, the last judge and first prophet is Samuel. 
Samuel is kind of a crossover, and what happens is is that he judged Israel for a while, and then his his sons ended up judging Israel. But uh, Israel said, forget it. We don't want to be judged by your sons and your family and by you guys. We want a king like all the other nations. And it turns out re- they rejected God. That's really what was going on here. They didn't want God to be their king anymore. They wanted their own king. They wanted to be just like everybody else. So God gives them what they want, and the first king that is anointed by Samuel is Saul. Now, Saul, I mean, he just is <sighs> just such a disappointment because he constantly disobeys God. And God finally says, enough is enough with you, Saul. I'm done. And so he, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to Jesse, who is the father of David, to his clan, and God picks David to be king of Israel. And Samuel anoints David to be the king of Israel. And really, in a a very true sense, David is like the prototype picture of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is in the line of David, and he is called the son of David. Jesus is you know, this idea of a priestly king. Okay, that's what we what we really see going on here in the story. So David constantly is pointing us to Christ. Even though David himself, he needs a savior big time. Okay? So this isn't a rag to riches story. This is a story of how David is anointed king of Israel while Saul is still on the throne. And by God's providence, David ends up going into the service of Saul in the palace, and the whole point of the reason why David's in the palace is he's there to play music to comfort Saul because God sends a wicked spirit to torment him. And David's singing of Psalms, which ends up becoming the word of God later, ends up providing some kind of relief from the torment that Saul was experiencing at the hands of this uh, this tormenting spirit that God sent to him, okay? And at the same time, David, you know, he's killed Goliath. David ends up going, you know, going on military expeditions, and his fame grows because God blesses everything that he does, that everything he sets his hands to, that's exactly what happens. Saul says, enough is enough is enough, and he tries to kill David and he pursues David in 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 you know in his attempts to to kill him. He sees him as a rival to the throne, a threat to his own power, and he wants him dead. Okay? That's where we're pick, we're, we're going to pick this story up here. Okay? But what would you got to look at this in the grand scheme, the grand narrative that's going on, all of this pointing us to and leading us to Christ showing our sinful wickedness, our need for a savior, how God handles sin, the different types of sin that are, you know, really, I mean, you got disobedience, you got pride, you got trust in armies and and other things that come into play here. There's a whole there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. So the story that he's picking up in uh, 1 Samuel 21 is where David is now officially on the run. Okay? He knows that uh, Saul is out to kill him. wishes him nothing but bodily harm. And so David is fleeing for his life. And there is no sin in fleeing for your life when the king wants you dead. 
Okay, especially when you've done no wrong, you've committed no crime. Let's continue. Maybe a roll of the eyes by King Saul, or maybe it was when the spear went hurtling past his head and almost killed him. But at some point, David realized, "Uh uh-oh, Saul doesn't like me. Saul's mad. In fact, Saul had become very jealous of David because the people loved David so much. And Saul began to try to kill David. He tried to kill him twice in the palace with his spear, and then he tries to hunt him down. And this is what I want us to see, because David, instead of turning to God the way we think he might, because God helped him defeat the giant and God helped Where in the text does it say that David didn't turn to God, that David was somehow relying on his own strength? Where does it say that in the text? It doesn't. He's eisegeting and misreading this passage. Helped him defeat the bear and the lion. But David doesn't do that. In fact, David does something that a lot of us probably do when we start to go into the midst of our plan B's, and that is he runs. David panics and he runs and he hides and he runs and he hides. And the Bible never says that he turned to God and looked to God or prayed to God. God, what do you want me to do? It just says he ran. And in fact, have you ever read the Psalms? Some of David's Psalms were actually written while he was on the run. Let me see if this one comes to mind. This may not be the right one I'm thinking of, but uh, Psalm... Mm, no, that's not it. Well, <clears throat> let me let me read to you this uh, this psalm here. Uh, I don't think it was written while David was on the run, but you kind of get the gist of what was going on here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is Psalm 13. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my lights, lest I sleep in the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So here uh, Tom is misreading uh, basically uh, 1 Samuel 21, and he's accusing David of not trusting in the Lord while he's on the run. Yet no passage says that. He's eisegeting that. It's not. It's never brought up as as something you know that's mentioned that David did wrong. By the way, David's sins are laid out in Scripture for you t- for the whole world to see. David was a great sinner, but this is never mentioned as a sin on his part. Yet Tom, coming to this text and not handling it correctly, has apparently found that David's at fault for being on the run while John, while Saul is trying to kill him. He starts lying and manipulating and tricking people and trying to somehow work through this all on his own without God's help. And that brings us to 1 Samuel 21. Okay, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 through... By the way, his whole setup is absolutely dead wrong. ...through 9 is what we're going to read together. It says, David went to Nob... Nob always sounds to me like a city that was in a Dr. Seuss book. To Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech trembled when he met him. He asked David, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. Lie, right? As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Lie again. Do you think that David is lying just because he's afraid? Or do you think he's trying in some way to protect Ahimelech? 
it says right there in verse 1, Ahimelech was shaking and trembling. Something was off. Ahimelech knew it. David wasn't there to get him involved and probably didn't want to have, you know, have his life be threatened. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, another lie. Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The priest gave him consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doug the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Does anybody else find it funny that there's a guy named Doug in the Bible? It's not Doug. It's Doeg. <laughs> That's just funny. Maybe it's not really pronounced Doug, but for me it's Doug. I like it. The priest replied, oh, here's what, here's what David says, though. David asks Ahimelech, don't you have a sword or a spear here? And this is what I want you to really focus in on, because this is pretty amazing. He says, I haven't brought... No, what's amazing is how he eisegetes this passage. I brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. And the priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed in the Valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. And David said... There is none like it. Give it to me. Now, I don't want you to miss this, okay? I've read this story probably numerous times. And I don't know that I've always caught the immensity of this moment, okay? Did you see it? See what? I mean, isn't it pretty ironic? God has such a great sense of humor, doesn't he? I mean, David is here, and he's just in this place that he went to, and he's asking for a sword. And he says, you have a sword? And Ahimelech goes, uh, just the sword of Goliath, the giant that you killed, cut his head off with it. It's wrapped up behind there. I mean, what are the chances that that sword is there in this building, in this room where this priest is? Well, see, I think something's happening here. Okay? I think what's happening is something... Yeah, well, you're, you're thinking things that, uh, <clears throat> well, aren't necessarily in the text. Something that often happens when we're in the midst of plan B. Sometimes in the middle of plan B, it's hard to see God, isn't it? I mean, it's really hard to see him when you're, you feel like you're walking alone. You feel like nothing I'm doing is going right. I'm in the midst of this thing that's just in my gut. Notice the reference to the uh, I walk alone, I walk alone from Green Day. It's killing me, and I pray, and I don't hear any answers, and I wonder where God is. It, that's probably kind of the way David's feeling right now. He just feels like he has no idea where God is or if God is even paying attention to him. Notice he's psychologizing David here and basically putting, you know, projecting onto him feelings that are not recorded for us in the text. How do you know that's how David felt? You imagine that's how he felt. How do you know he didn't feel completely different? But then all of a sudden, God just kind of taps him on the shoulder. Yoo-hoo. David, look. Remember me? David had never forgotten God. It, the, the text doesn't say that David had forgotten God or walked away from God or had neglected God or anything of the sort. Your interpretation is completely flawed because it assumes that. The sword. The sword that you killed the, the giant with. Remember? You, you didn't kill that giant on your own. Remember who helped you do that? There it is. Now listen, sometimes, sometimes God does that to us too, doesn't he? 
And, and it could be, you know, just a person that just like you haven't seen for a long time. They come back into your life and they say something to you or, or maybe it's a, a memory that just comes flooding back. Or, or maybe you're, um, you know, maybe you've been praying for a prayer a long time and you quit praying for it. And then you're in the midst of this thing and all of a sudden that prayer gets answered and you just go, wow. Or, or maybe it's, it's a, a message that you're hearing and God just in some way that he's almost audibly never spoken to you before. He just goes, that's, why I, that's you, I'm talking to you. But somehow God reminds us that he is here and who he is. And so, so this is apparently uh, the sword of Goliath is a, is a gentle reminder from God. Hey, you've forgotten about me, but I'm still here. The text doesn't say that. And that he's faithful. Sometimes it's a whisper. Sometimes he slaps us upside the head, doesn't he? But oftentimes we're in the middle of plan B. God does something to try, to try to get our attention. The question is, are we listening? The question is, are we looking? The question is, will we see God when he does that? Tracy and I went through quite a few plan Bs in, in our early marriage. Not in our marriage itself, but just in our lives. I mean, we, we, we love being parents. We have four kids. Um, we, we, had our, we, we got pregnant our first time. And we were so happy and, you know, doing all the planning stuff and the naming stuff and everything. And then after about three months... And now he's exegeting his life. His life, by the way. Tom, his life is not on par with Scripture. I just want to let you know that. Of, ...of being pregnant, Tracy miscarried, and we lost the kid. It was maybe a year after that that Tracy's dad got sick, really sick with really bad cancer. And he fought that cancer um, for quite a while, but it just ended up eating him alive, and Tracy's dad died. And then it was not more than... It, it wasn't two years later that Tracy's mom... Just, she was healthy, she was, you know, doing great, and she just one day just died with, with no warning. And I remember Tracy and I, and I, I'll just talk for myself, I remember thinking, God, why are you doing this? God, what is happening? God, we're, we're trying to live our lives according to your plans. You, you know, we, we're going to church. We're, we're, you know, we're going to teach our kids about you and stuff like that. We love you. Why are you doing this? Is it something we did? God, where are you? You know, just not even, not even really understanding at all why we were going through that. But Tracy's family came to California, and uh, they all came to her mom's house. And I'll never forget this. We were all sitting around, and I was off in a room, and Tracy came into the room where I was. And Tracy said something. If you know Tracy, this isn't something that she would normally say. But she, she came in and she said, I think God wants us to share our faith with my family. Now, her sisters were all there, their husbands were all there, their kids were all there. There's like, I don't know, 20 people so in this house. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know he does, baby, you know. And she's like, no, now. And I was like, okay, how are you going to do that, you know. And she's like, no, I think we're supposed to do this. I think God just wants us to do this right now. And so Tracy and I... We just, I don't even remember how it happened, but I remember we, we asked the family if they would meet us in the living room. And, and all these people sat around in this living room, and Tracy and I shared our faith with them. And we just told them, you know, hey, this may be weird timing for you guys. You know, we're all in the midst of this really heartbreak and heartache. But we just want you guys to know, we believe that mom's death just tells us that life is short. And we believe that there's something after this life. And we believe that, that we want to be together with you guys forever in heaven. And we believe that if you were to die without Christ, that you wouldn't be there with us. And we just want to let you know. And I think it was like we were speaking 
Greek or something because they were all just kind of sitting there looking at us like, I don't think they said a word. They kind of did the Chevy Chase, remember in vacation when he looked at the Grand Canyon, you know, kind of. Okay, and then, you know, and they, just, and they all just walked out, you know. And, and, you know, Tracy and I just went, okay. But you know what? I really believe, I really believe that God nudged Tracy at that time. I believe that in the midst of her heartbreak, because her heart was broken, I believe that God nudged her to do that. And I believe that Tracy somehow found a way to, to see through that and see what God wants us to do. I think it started something. It began something in Tracy. It began something in me. And it began something in her family that never would have happened had Tracy not listened to God, had, had she not been looking and been willing to say, okay, God, even in the midst of this, I think you're trying to tell me something. Unfortunately for David, David misses it. Okay, David doesn't see it and go, you're right, God. You are with me. David does the exact opposite. He takes the sword. Wow, this is such an abominable handling of First uh, Samuel 21. And now we're just, see, well, David was completely oblivious to that subjective nudging from God. His wife got it, but David didn't. Yeah, Tom's wife, well, she's far more in tune to those little subjective nudgings from God, the Holy Spirit, than, you know, King David, the guy who wrote a large percentage of the Psalms. I mean, you know, the biblical author, the king of Israel, the the man who is the, really kind of the prototype looking forward to Christ. I mean, he was completely oblivious to the nudging of the Holy Spirit here in 1 Samuel 21. Sword, he's like, yeah, I'll take it. And he runs. And he continues to run. And if we had time to look through all the rest of the story, what we would see is in chapter 22... The consequences of David's running and David's lying is that Ahimelech and all the priests and every single person in that family and every single person that lives in the city of Nob is slaughtered by Saul. Who? Uh, oh, wait a second. Hang on a second here. Who's responsible for everybody in Nob dying? Let me back up the tape. If you heard, if you listen carefully, you heard him pin. That one on David. Listen. I'll take it. And he runs. And he continues to run. And if we had time to look through all the rest of the story, what we would see is in chapter 22, the consequences of David's running and David's lying is that Ahimelech and all the priests and every single person in that family and every single person that lives in the city of Nob is slaughtered by Saul. Wait, wait a second. Everyone is slaughtered by Saul. And that's David's fault again Saul is king of what of Israel Israel is God's people so David is running for his life because King Saul wants him dead Ahimelech is ultimately slaughtered and the people of Nob are slaughtered for offering help to David and that's David's fault not Saul's don't you think you have this completely backwards? David didn't murder those people. And they weren't murdered because of his recklessness. And they weren't murdered because that he wasn't close with God and, for, and really wasn't paying attention to God's nudging. The people in Nob were murdered because Saul went evil and rogue. This is the story of an evil and wicked king. 
David is every bit as innocent as Ahimelech was. Who is so ticked off that they would help David. And the thing was, poor Ahimelech didn't even realize he was helping him because he thought that David was there on behalf of Saul. Okay? And, and David admits to the one person who escapes and comes and tells him, hey, my whole family's dead. He's killed all the priests. And David admits, it's my fault. I am to blame for your father and your family's death. Hang on a second here. Yes, hang on. First Samuel 22. Let's see what's happening here. Okay, <clears throat> let's see here. It's second. It's First Samuel chapter 22, and I gotta look something up here in the Hebrew real quick because there's a there's kind of an important word here in the Hebrew that I need to make sure I've got cleaned up before we get there. It's in verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 22. Una momento while I look this up here real quick. Um, okay, responsible, savav. Okay, if you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel chapter 22, <clears throat> um, we're going to start at verse 6. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse uh, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all your commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, <clears throat> who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob and Ahimelech, the son of Ahutub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahatub, and his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahatub. And he said, Answer, here I am, my lord. And, the, and Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait? As at this day, then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all of your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all of your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn the sp and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. <clears throat> it was this David's fault? 
And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both men and women, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. What did they do? But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahatub, named Abathar, escaped, and he fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Now, verse 22, in the NIV it says, I am responsible for the death of all those persons. However, the ESV, I think, does a better job of translating this passage because it doesn't say, I'm responsible. He says, I have occasioned the death of these persons. David wasn't responsible for the death of those people. However, he, what happened, his actions basically occasioned a madman to act so unjustly and so cruelly that it led to people's death. David is not responsible. David did not cause Saul to do those things. Saul committed murder, and God's law strictly forbids it. Saul was acting completely outside of the realm of his power as king, and yet it's you know, David, as humble as he was, he's so unlike Saul. He wasn't even the one who put the, who really killed these people, and yet he feels bad because he knew that his actions played into that in such a way. The contrast couldn't be sharper. In fact, so wicked and evil was Saul's command to kill the priests of the Lord that none of his own army would do it, and only Doag the Edomite, a foreigner, would carry out Saul's orders. Man, the way Tom is mishandling this text and psychologizing it, I mean, we're we're just, this is a miserable handling of God's word. And David, from that point, realizes that this running thing really isn't all it's cracked up to be, and he starts to turn to God, and you see that David's life begins to take another trajectory. But until this point... What we see is that type of running, that type of... What are you talking about? David ends up running for a long, long time. This running thing isn't all it's cracked up to be? He ends up running for, I mean, and being pursued by Saul for quite a bit of time. And on two occasions, God delivers Saul into David's hand, and David still won't kill him. Are we reading the same Bible, Tom? of panic, that type of running away from God really had some serious consequences in David's life. And here's the question I want to ask you, okay? For us, what is your pattern? What, is you, what do you do when it looks like your life is out of control? What- oh, give me a break. What is your pattern? Do you start running and panicking? Do you start lying and manipulating? Do you start trying to take matters into your own hands? Do you get angry? Do you do you turn your back on God? Do you get con- I run around the the uh my living room uh just waving my arms in the air going ah, ah! consumed with worry and anxiety. I mean, I'm not casting stones because I do. I do all of those things. Those are the natural human things to do when these tragedies or when these hardships come into our life, isn't it? The only thing is, it's not the smart thing to do. Because the question is, what has that running, 
What has that panic, what has that worry ever done for you? I cannot believe he took this text and did that with it. It's absolutely an abomination. I mean, Jesus Christ himself said, which of you by worrying can add one hour to your life, right? And the answer, of course, is none of us. And yet we constantly do that. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. This church is, is very young. And already over the two and a half years or so that this church has, has been a church, I could think of probably on more than, more than one hand people who have been to this church, who have come to know Christ at this church, who have been baptized and begin growing in a loving relationship with God and they get in a small group and it seems like their life is really turning around and they just want to, they just seem hungry for the word and they're doing all of this and then something happens in their life. Maybe a marriage issue comes back or maybe financial problems. And even in the midst of all that they were doing, they just turn and they just run. And Please understand, okay, we're not a stalker church by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, when someone leaves us and we know that they're hurting, we try to reach out to them. It's like, no, don't don't run away. Come on, let us help you through this. But there's so many times that so many of them just can't see past what they're in and they just keep on running when the smartest thing they could do is to turn back to God. And so what I want to what I want to what I want to say to you guys is this, okay? People people in 12-step programs, they often say don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. How many times have we given up in the midst of plan B, five minutes before that miracle, before that deliverance was just about to come to us? One day, it might be now, it might be tomorrow, it might be next month, it might be six years from now, but one day your life may feel like it's slipping away, like it's out of control, like you're in the middle of something that you never saw coming, and you may feel like you want to run. You may feel like you want to panic. You may feel like the last thing you want to do is turn to God. And my prayer for you is that the first thing that you would do is to not run, is to not give up, is to realize that even though you can't see it right now, that things will turn. It might not turn the way you want it to. It might not turn the way you had planned. God may not act in the way that you want God to act, but God will act. How do I know that? Well, one of the amazing promises in this book, the Bible, is found in 1 Peter 5.10. I'm going to read it from the message translation, okay? Just... Uh, the message isn't a translation. Yeah, you know there's a problem when your pastor thinks the message is a translation. Good night. Just because you've probably heard these verses many times, I want to kind of let you see it in a new and fresh way. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, Keep a cool head. Stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce and would like nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep your guard up. You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same with Christians all over the world. So keep a firm grip on the faith. The suffering won't last forever. That's hard to see when you're in the middle of the suffering, isn't it? But the suffering won't last forever. Another place in the Bible says... Uh, hang on a second here. First Peter chapter 5. I'm going to begin where he should begin... At verse 1, although he should be really reading this whole thing, because 1 Peter begins with these wonderful words. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Yeah, that's how First Peter, those are just the opening words. I mean, it talks about Christ and the gospel, the forgiveness of sins and the redemption and the rebirth by God. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, kind of continues on that thought. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, establish you. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so all of this stuff coming is really referring back to, uh, well, the coming revelation, the coming revelation of Christ's kingdom, the eschaton. Not that God's going to come and restore plan A or it's uh, all this plan B stuff is just ridiculous. It's a complete mishandling of the text. And now he's preaching from the message translation. That's an oxymoron. Weeping remains in the night, but joy comes in the morning. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ, eternal and glorious plans they are, will have you put together and on your feet for good. He gets the last word. Yes, he does. So if running and panic and worry aren't the answer, okay, then what is? What do I do when I find myself walking down the B-O-B-D? That's the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. I'm just tired of saying Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Well, let's look at another guy, okay? Because this guy's name is Joseph. And I think we can learn something from Joseph's life that's, that's, that's so telling, okay? What I learned from Joseph's life when I read it. Yeah, because, you know, Joseph, you know, he was walking down the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. I mean, he had dreams of his brothers and father and mother bowing down before him. And then look what happened. He was sold into slavery in Egypt. Oh, talk about broken dreams here. Oh, this is just terrible. Is that life is a roller coaster, okay? It has ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. You notice that that's not the purpose of the story, is to show you that life is a roller coaster that has ups and downs. That's not why... God had the story of Joseph written. 
And what I try to see when I read about Joseph is how in the world did Joseph make it through all of those ups and downs still trusting in God? Because here's, the, here's what you learn from Joseph's life. That even when you're down in the pits, God is with you. It might not seem like it. You not, might not be able to see it. But if you are a child of God, God is with you. And we, and we can see that in Joseph's life. Now, Joseph had so many things happen in his life that were up and down, crazy bad. I think sometimes it's hard to keep even track of whether it was good and bad. So I want to try this little game with you guys, okay? I'm going to say something that happened in Joseph's life, and you're going to tell me whether it was good or bad, okay? And you can all just shout out, good if it was good, and bad if it was bad, okay? Let's try this out. Joseph was loved by his father. That's a... That's a good thing. Joseph was hated by his brothers. That's a... Joseph's dad gave him a coat of many colors. It was beautiful. That's a... But Joseph's brothers stole that coat, put blood on it, made it look like he was dead, threw him in the pit, and sold him off into slavery. And that's a... Right. Some of you aren't yelling. Okay, so Joseph, when he's in Egypt, he's sold to Potiphar, and Potiphar... Um, loves him. He's a great servant. And Potiphar elevates him to the, the head of his household, which is a? Right. And Joseph, the Bible says, is extremely well built. And Joseph is a very handsome man, kind of like Keith Urban, who my wife believes is very good looking, even though I am bigger and stronger than Keith Urban, and I could probably beat him up, which is a? Good thing, yes. And, but Potiphar's wife thinks Joseph's a hunk, and so she makes a move on him, which is a? Some of you didn't seem real convinced on that one. Yes, that was a bad thing. And then what happens is Joseph doesn't give in to the pressure and temptation. He runs, which is a? But then Potiphar's wife lies about him and he gets thrown into prison, which is a? And then while he's in prison, the prison warden loves him and somebody who, he meets somebody who can get him out of prison and that's a? You guys are losing it here. That's a good thing. And then finally the guy gets out of prison, but he forgets about him and that's a? A bad thing. You see what I'm saying? Joseph had amazing, just roller coaster. Yeah, that's why the story was written. You know, all this roller coaster, just to show you that life can throw you some good and bad stuff. Unbelievable. Roller coaster in his life. And here's the question. The question that I want to ask you, the question that Joseph had to be asking himself. What would you do in the middle of your plan B if you were convinced Beyond a doubt, if you were convinced that God was with you. Let's say your marriage is unraveling, okay, and you're about ready to hit the panic button. What would you do if you were convinced that God was with you? Let's say, let's say you go to the doctor and, and, and you just go for some checkup and the doctor tells you, you have cancer. What would you do? How would you react to that if you knew that God was with you? Because the interesting thing in the story of Joseph is that every time something bad happens to him, some really bad stuff. We see this little phrase in the Bible that, that the Bible includes in there to tell us about the story. I want you to turn. Turn with me to Genesis 39, okay? Because this is so interesting. It goes so against what our natural instinct is. Because I'll tell you what. When things are going well for me, I think God is with me. I think, God, thank you for blessing me. God, you, you really pulled me through on that one. God, this is amazing. You're right with me. But when things start going bad... I think the exact opposite. I think, okay, God, must, you must have forgot about me. God, you kind of, you know, you went off the grid. You're busy with somebody else. But what we find in Joseph's life is that every time something bad happens to Joseph, the Bible includes this little line. Look at this, Genesis 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. 
Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse 20 down there says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. This is after Potiphar's wife lied about him. The place where the king's prisoners were kept. But while Joseph was there in prison, look what it says. The Lord was with him. And then later on in verse 23, it says, The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph. And he had success in whatever he does. Now you might be thinking, well, of course Joseph believed the Lord was with him because he always had success. But think about what has happened in Joseph's life. Think about when he's down in the pit. He doesn't know the end of the story. We do. But he didn't know the end of the story. And yet somehow Joseph knew that God was with him down there. And then when he gets thrown into prison, he doesn't know what's going to happen. It's so easy for us to just skim over these things because he's just a Bible character and a Bible story. But if you think about it and understand this is a real guy who was going through plan B's that many of us have never, ever gone through. And yet he still understood, he still found a way to understand that God was with him even when he couldn't see him. I mean, listen to what Joseph finally says to his brothers when they come to, food for, to Egypt for food. And Joseph is in charge. He's second in command of all of Egypt at this point. And Joseph is handing out the food and he sees his brothers who sold him into slavery. Look at what he says. And Joseph says to his brothers, this is in Genesis 45, chapter 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, the Bible says that the brothers were incredibly scared because they thought, uh-oh, we're in for it. We're doomed. Joseph is going to take his ultimate revenge. But listen to what Joseph had learned over his life. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to prepare you or to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then down in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save the lives of many. And here's something that we always miss. Have you noticed how that ties perfectly in with Christ's crucifixion for our sins? I mean, the Joseph story points us right to Jesus in the cross. <sighs> and that's really why it's there. Okay. Joseph didn't miss this. Some of you look very spiritual. I don't think you miss it. But I'll tell you, I miss this all the stinking time. God is much more interested in the person that I will eventually become than he is in about where I'm going. <sighs> Sounds like a Rick Warren quote, and it's not found in the Bible. Isn't that true? God is much more interested in the person that I will become than he is about where I am going. And with me, it's the opposite. You know, if someone were to ask me back when I was in high school, you know, what's your goal? I would have been, okay, I'm going to go to here to college and I'm going to get this job and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to get a house. And I'm going to have a nice family and I'll do lots of great things. and I'll have this wonderful, long, you know, life filled with with nothing, you know, no regrets and stuff. How many of us ever say my goal in life is to be a man of the most integrity of anybody that I've ever met, a man who loves like no one has ever loved, a man who serves people like no one has ever served. 
That's not usually what we think about when we think about what we want to do. We think about where we want to go. But God thinks differently than that. God, as Rick Warren says, is more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. And God has plans for you today that you couldn't possibly even know about. And he... Really, how do you know that? I mean, how could you make such a blanket statement? God has plans for you today that you couldn't possibly know about. Really? Like what? How many of the people in your church are going to be the president of the United States? I mean, would you, I mean, how many of them are going to, you know, get out of the boat, walk on the water and save uh, a remnant for God? I mean, seriously. How, I mean, what about the person who's in your congregation right now who's going to be dead next week? What's the big plan for them? Ah. <sighs> has set something in motion sometimes that you may have to go through. You don't know what you need to go through, but he does because you don't even know the type of person that you need to become to actually be able to do the thing that God really wants you to do and be the person that God wants you to be. So maybe today he's called you to love the person who's just totally... I mean, I mean so I mean, basically this is all about you becoming... What God, the person that God wants you be, to be for the plan that God has for you, but you don't know what it is that God's plan is for you. But I'm sure if you just imagine hard enough, you think you you can imagine that's a big, important thing. Because everybody in every church is called to do a big, important thing. I mean, there's no dog catchers in Christianity, I'm sure. And uh, but you know, so you got this big, important plan that God has for you. Uh, maybe you're, maybe the plan is for you to be eaten by lions in in uh, in, in a revived uh, Roman arena. <sighs> I, I seriously, I, I I a while ago somebody sent me a fine cartoon, if you can call it that. It was it was a painting. It showed Christians in the floor of the Colosseum in Rome, um, huddled together praying. And uh, and the lions had just been released, and the, the lions were slowly approaching them, about ready to have a meal. And the caption to the thing read, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Think about it. He broke in your heart and ripped your, your house apart. Maybe he's called you to love that person. It doesn't make sense to you. But see, God wants to soften you and God wants to turn you into another type of a person for something that he has planned for you later on. Maybe today he's asking you to, 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 you know, maybe go for some job interviews to jobs that you will never get. And you think that was a big waste. But maybe it's because God wants to do something inside of you and, and, and bring perseverance and character into your life that you never would have had had that not happened. Or maybe... Maybe, you know, God wants you to... This is the... I mean, the sermon should be entitled, Maybe God Wants to Do Something. <sighs> this is useless. Read the text and correctly exegete it and show me what God has actually said. And stop trying to figure out what God may be saying to me or maybe has for me to do. To live in the place that you're living and you feel like, I really wish I was living there, you know? And I really wish I was in that house and not in this house. And I wish I had this. But maybe God wants you to do that because God wants you to learn to rely on him. And not so much to rely on your things and on your place and on where you are. The process of becoming the person God wants us to be, a pastor named Erwin McManus said this, is so much... Oh, so he reads Warren and McManus. That explains why his theology is all screwed up. ...much often not from success, 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 success. 
It comes from failure, success, loss, success, heartbreak, success, disappointment, success. That's usually the way that we become the people that God wants us to be. We hate that, man. We want life to be awesome and excellent and easy. But listen to what what James said in James chapter 1. Again, this is from the message translation. Again, just because it's such a well-known verse that I want you to see it. In, in maybe a little different light here. Yeah, because, you know, the message is such a reliable translation. He says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. A gift. Got that? You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work in you. And become mature, well-developed, not, not deficient in any way. Anyone who meets a testing, it says in, chapter, in verse 12, anyone who meets a testing challenge head-on and manages to stick it out is mighty fortunate. That's so counter-intuitive, counter isn't it? For such persons loyally in love with God, the reward is life and more life. And so the hope that we have is this. And this is what I kind of, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you why you're going through what you're going through and that it's going to be easy. But this is the hope. If God's word is true, this is the hope that we have. What seems like plan B to us may very well be the biggest plan A for our lives that God has in store for us. And we just don't know it yet. Now, I don't know why God chose to take Tracy's parents when they were when they were that young, you know, I don't know why Tracy. I, I wish Tracy could have, you know, could have experienced 20 more years in her life with her parents, who she loved so much. I wish our kids knew their grandparents. You know, I don't know why, and I think I'll go through this life never quite knowing why. And I'll ask, well, God, you know, did it have to be like that? I don't know if it had to be, but I do know this. Okay, I think it was the day of Mom's funeral. The day of Mom's funeral, Tracy and I had the amazing, just incredible experience of leading six of her family members to Christ. It was so cool. And I still, my mind still just goes over, over to that time. Her Two of her sisters and two of their husbands and, and, and two kids just grabbed us and said, you know that thing you were talking about? We want to do it. And I was just like, no, you don't. You know, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And we prayed with them, and they received Christ, and, and their lives are still going with Christ. And, you know, one of those kids was a teenage boy named Joe. He's our nephew. And Joe, you know, his life just totally became about God and what God wanted from that day. And Joe has, you know, he's lived in Mexico as a missionary. And, and Joe has, he's a, he's a youth pastor at a church in Arizona. Joe has led people to Christ. I mean, now, I don't know that that's the only way God could have done that. I'm sure God could have done it another way. I don't know exactly why that had to happen, and I'm not glad that they're gone. But all I can say is, I don't always see it, God. But when I see it from the other side, I just go, you know, you know what you're doing. God, you know what you're doing. And this morning, I can't honestly give you a good answer to your particular plan B. I'm not even going to try. I don't want to minimize what you're going through. Some of you, as I look around this room, I know some of you, and I see some really serious 
serious things that you're going through. And I'm not going to tell you, hey, you know, just be glad, you know, because you're going to get through it and, and all this stuff. Because, because that's not necessarily what I want to tell you today, okay? You know, why did my baby die? I don't know. Why did my marriage fall apart? Why did he walk out on me? I don't know. Why did your financial life drop out on you? I this would be the perfect place to talk about the correlation between all of those things and sin. The world is the way the world is because of our rebellion and sin against God. You do know why these things are happening. They are the consequences of our sin. Now, in a second here, he's going to switch the subject to the gospel. And believe it or not, he's going to give a somewhat decent gospel presentation. So it's like, what is he doing mixing the gospel with this stuff? And why can't he connect the the fact that all of these broken dreams, the shattered lives, the complete destruction wrought upon us and that we rot, wreak upon others. Is that the right way of putting it? I mean, that's all a result of our rebellion and sin against God. For which Christ died and calls us to repent and be forgiven because we are both perpetrators and victims when it comes to this stuff. No one is innocent. None is righteous. No one seeks God. All together have become worthless. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's why the world is as rotten as the world is. It's us that we're the problem. And this sinful nature, our natures are completely warped and twisted and just destroyed, gutted out as a result of our sin. When it comes to things that pertain to God, we are completely powerless. And when it comes to our relationships with each other, they're, oh man... Yeah, we're capable of doing some choosing to be nice to our neighbor, but we still hurt our neighbors, and we are hurt by them in many and various ways. This is the point where you say the reason why all of this is happening is because of our sinfulness. I don't know, but this I know, okay? As long as we live life on this earth, we're going to have unanswered questions, right? But I know this. There's this hope. Remember I said, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. Okay, but that's not, that's only half of the sentence Jesus said. And that's only half of theology. And half of theology is dangerous, isn't it? Jesus said this, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart. Take heart, because I have overcome the world. So what I want to tell you is this, you know, we hold two seemingly contradictory truths in our hearts, don't we? One is that God is love, and the other is that life is full of disappointment and hurt and heartbreak. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile those two things. But but if you would preach sin correctly, there would be no problem there whatsoever. We would just clear that right up. But what I can tell you is that maybe a month from now, a year from now, maybe today, if you're in the middle of a plan B, I can offer you this hope. It's this word of hope, okay? I can't offer you answers, but I think that instead of answers, God gives us this hope and an answer, and it's found in the cross. Some of you are thinking, the cross? That's the answer. 
hey, I've already dealt with the cross, you know. I already accepted Christ as my, he's my Savior. I've already left my sins at the cross. I want something deeper. I need something to, to help me understand what I'm going through. I need something deeper, and, and I need some steps to take. And I'm telling you this, okay. You see, the thing is, the cross isn't just the starting point. The Bible says that the cross is the absolute center. It's the center point. It's the center of everything in our lives. Okay, now, you're sitting there going, well, this took a good turn. Yeah, it takes a great turn here at the end. And I, I, to which I would basically say, yeah, Tom, amen. However, the cross doesn't make sense unless you deal with the thorny issue of our sin and rebellion head on. I feel like you're trying to sneak that concept in without stepping on too many toes or driving too many seekers away from your church. As a result of it, the cross at this point, I'm sitting there going, okay, here's the cross, and he's preaching it somewhat solidly. The problem is, is that the sin issue wasn't dealt with properly. As a result of it, the cross doesn't make sense. Listen to what Paul said. Paul said this in Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. J.C. Ryle, a preacher who lived in the 1800s, and yes, people who lived in the 1800s still have things that we can learn from today. He said he lived the cross. He's talking about the Apostle Paul. He lived the cross all his life. From the time of his conversion, he tells the Galatians, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What made him so strong to labor? What made him so willing to work? What made him so unwearied and endeavoring to save some? What made him so persevering and patient? I will tell you the secret of it all. All through his life, he was feeding by faith on Christ's body and Christ's blood. Jesus' sacrifice was the meat and drink to his soul. You may know a good deal about Christ by a kind of head knowledge. You may know who he was, where he was born, and what he did. You may know his miracles, his sayings, his prophecies, and his ordinances. You may know how he lived, how he suffered, how he died. You may know all those things, but unless you know the power of Christ's cross by experience, unless you know and feel within that the blood shed on that cross has washed your particular sins, not just the sins of the world, but your particular sins. Stop. Now, this quote by J.C. Ryle. Okay, I, I, don't, I really don't even know who he was. Okay, but I'll sit there and go, okay, this sounds decent. Tom, here you have J.C. Ryle focusing in on the cross. You say this is the solution. J.C. Ryle is saying, unless you understand that Christ died for your particular sins, the cross doesn't have any meaning. Do you honestly think that the all the preaching you did up to the point where you decided to talk about the cross helped people to understand their particular sins and shortcomings so that the cross is the solution for it? My answer is no way, Jose. I didn't I didn't connect any dots here. This is pretty much everyone's victim of bad circumstances and have to rely on plan B. And if not, then we hate you and don't worry, plan B is coming for you. 
There was no connection made between all of these terrible, horrible things that happened to people and sin. Therefore, the cross doesn't make sense. You're right. It's the solution. But if you're going to offer the cross as a solution, you have to, you have to rightly diagnose the patient. The, the, the prognosis is terminal. It's absolutely terminal. The diagnosis is sin. And it's in each and every individual one of us. So you never took the time to do the hard, thorny thing to preach the law to basically show people, oh, man, I have sinned against a holy and just God. And these terrible things that have happened to me really are my fault because I've disobeyed God. And that these things that have that even the things that I'm not directly responsible for are a result of the sin that is in all of us. That the people who have sinned against me did so because of their rebellion against God. Look at the soup that we're all in. We're all, if we don't have a savior, we're all in trouble. See, in that sense, the, the cross makes sense, but that's not what's been preached to this point. Unless you are willing to confess that your salvation, your entire life depends on the work that Christ did upon the cross, unless this be the case, Christ will profit you a big fat zero. And again, the irony here is, is that the cross could really be pointed out as the ultimate plan B. Think about it. God created Adam and Eve as good. He went to the cross to save us. That wasn't plan A. And look at all that Christ suffered on our behalf. Look at his plan B. It took his life. Look at what he suffered, beaten, flogged, pierced for our transgressions, crucified, whipped, scourged, crown of thorns pressed into his head. Talk about the ultimate plan B. He will profit you nothing. The mere knowing Christ's name, he continued, will never save you. You must know his cross and his blood, or else you will die in your sins. Today, I'm going to say something that's not politically correct, and it may even offend, but that's, I believe, what I'm here to do. If you have never, ever come to grips with what Christ did for you on the cross, if you have never given your life to the one who gave his life to you, then the cross is the only thing that matters here today. It, it really is. You could live a life that's completely, you know, free of, 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 of plan B's. You could live a life that's plan A all the way. But think about it, man. It's 80 years. And then what? No. See, again, this... Uh, Tom, you just showed the complete weakness of your own sermon. You might live a life that's plan A all the way. But, dude, let me... It's only 80 years and then you're going to die. That's not a reason for them to repent and be forgiven. Anybody who, quote, is experiencing all the plan A's in their life and haven't been kicked down to plan B, few people like that exist, but anybody who is living that life, 
they're still sinners in need of a Savior. If you had preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins, law and gospel, sin and grace, then you wouldn't be having to go, dude, come on, you're, you're going to die in 80 years, man. Even if you have plan A all the way, this has still got to be for you, man. Come on. The person would say, well, then I'll wait till I'm 80 years old and I'm about ready to die. Yet if you had preached the law properly, they would be begging for Christ's mercy, regardless of whether or not they have a plan A, plan B, plan C, or plan D life. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is an eternal life through Jesus Christ and through the cross of Christ. And so if you're here today without that, yeah, the cross, the cross is literally the only thing that matters to you today. If you're a Christian and you're here, I still want to take you back because the cross truly is, as the, as the writer of Hebrews said, is the hope and the anchor for our soul, firm and secure. So what you need this morning, what we all need, it's more than a bumper sticker slogan. What we need is the cross, the anchor for our soul. It's not just something that gets you into heaven. It's the anchor for your life. When your life is rocked, when you're walking down the boulevard of broken dreams, and like the song says, you're just wishing that someone out there would find me. The cross tells us, that you never have to walk alone. Let's pray. I'll give him props for talking about the cross at the end. But the sad part is it didn't make any sense. The reason why is because the message is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's a twin message, law and gospel. And because he didn't preach the law properly... The cross is held out there and people are looking at it going, huh? I don't see how that applies. I don't see how it applies. I mean, did you see how it applies? I didn't catch the connection. I I need the cross so that I can understand that God's with me on the boulevard of broken dreams. No, I need the cross because I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched, rotten sinner and I need the forgiveness of sins. And man, do I need it bad. So do you. It's not enough to just preach grace. We're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Grace has no context without God's law and God's wrath. Grace has no real context without understanding God's judgment and justice. And how we're all perpetrators, how we all stand guilty before God because God's law condemns us. I'm glad he ended on the cross, but it seems to me like effort wasted because people were not driven to despair. People were not driven to despair of their own righteousness. They weren't driven to seek for God's mercy because they are evil and rotten and and in need of his forgiveness. Instead, you know, they're pretty much left comfortable going, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the boulevard of broken dreams, but that's okay. God might have a big plan for me. And you see, I'm going through all of this for a reason because he's preparing me for the big thing he's going to do in my life. He's going to use me for something big, man. Just You just wait and see. Yeah, that's not the gospel. And that's not our motivation 
for it's, it's it doesn't even make the the cross doesn't even make sense in light of that at all. <sighs> Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, law and gospel, sin and grace. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. And you take them apart, you ain't got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Plain and simple. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission uh, fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.